Well, friends, we are back this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. We're continuing on through this wonderful book of Scripture. We are continuing on more specifically in Romans chapter 4. Paul is in the middle of a section where he is considering Abraham. He's considering the fact and making the point that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. Abraham was not justified by works of the law. And he is going to demonstrate how it is exactly that Abraham is held up as the model of justification by faith apart from works of the law. And by the time we're done today, it's my hope, and I trust it's yours as well, that we will all be encouraged as we consider what the Lord did for Abraham and what he therefore will do for us. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 4. We're going to be looking pointedly today at verses 13 to 25. Just a few brief comments about where we've been as you turn and make your way to Romans 4.13. Paul had asserted early on in his letter that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And this is because and only because the gospel reveals the righteousness that God gives to sinners that is entirely of faith. Salvation through faith in Christ is the only hope for mankind. Book that. Own that. This is because all human beings are under sin. All human beings are therefore guilty before God, and all human beings are incapable of being justified by their own obedience. Paul then extolled and explained the righteousness that God gives to sinners through faith, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus who fulfilled all of the requirements of the law for righteousness. And Jesus who endured all of the law's curse. He did this in the place of sinners. And everyone who is united to him by faith is represented by Christ and are therefore declared just because of Christ alone. In chapter 4, Paul illustrates these truths, and he does it beautifully by appealing to the Old Testament. There is gospel in the Old Testament, saints. Remember that always. Paul points to Abraham and his justification. He cites David to demonstrate further that Righteousness is counted to sinners by faith apart from works. And then beginning in Romans 4 and verse 9, going through the end of the chapter, Paul engages the history of Abraham at more length to further prove his argument. That's where we are. So listen now as I read God's word for us, beginning in Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. This is the word of God. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope so that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. The argument of Romans 4 verses 9 to 25 is the following. I'm going to try to say this plainly. Because keep this in your mind, and if you leave here with nothing else today, this will help you. The argument of Romans 4, 9 to 25, is this. Abraham was not justified by circumcision. His justification was before circumcision. And this was to make him the father of all who believe in Jesus, whether that person be a Gentile or a Jew. That's verses 9 to 12. Abraham was also not justified by works of the law. His justification was apart from works of the law. This was to teach us how any person, Gentile or Jew, is justified in God's sight. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's verses 13 to 25. My plan this morning is to consider this text in three points. Now, between points two and three, we're going to do an extended meditation and reflection on Abraham's life. And for some of you out there, it's like, well, brother, isn't that four points? If that helps you, that's fine. In my mind, it's point one, point two, Abraham's life, point three. But if you need to change that, feel free to. You have that liberty in the Lord Jesus. Point one, eternal life comes through the righteousness of faith. Pretty straightforward. Eternal life comes through the righteousness of faith. That's verses 13 to 17 that we'll consider for the next several moments. If you put your eyes on verse 13, we see that the promise of an eternal inheritance. So when you read that, the promise that he would be heir of the world, that's a a promise of eternal life, a promise of salvation, a promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Right? The promise of an eternal inheritance for Abraham did not come through obedience to the law. How did it come? It came through the righteousness of faith. That's a wonderful phrase. The righteousness of faith. The righteousness that is secured by faith. That's apprehended by faith. As we thought about at several points through this series, faith itself is not our righteousness. Faith is the means through which the righteousness of Christ is applied to sinners like you and me. We shouldn't be shocked by this language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 4.13. He started out. The whole thesis statement of his letter is that the gospel reveals this kind of righteousness. 
the righteousness of faith, not righteousness of works under the law. The gospel reveals, Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is how the promise would be realized with respect to Abraham. Verse 14, if it is those who are literally of the law, if it is those who are of the law who are to be heirs of eternal life, Paul says, then faith is null and the promise of God is void. If it is those who are of the law who are to be heirs of eternal life, faith is overthrown, says Paul. How so? Well, it's because the inheritance is obtained by works. As Paul writes elsewhere, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, who does the commandments, shall live by them. Paul says if it's those who are of the law who are to be heirs of eternal life, then the promise is abolished. How so? Well, because no one will obtain it. No one will obtain the inheritance. Effectively, if it's those who are of the law who are to be heirs of the world, it's like, God, it's great that you made the promise, but nobody's going to benefit. Verse 15, Paul goes on in his argumentation. He says, the law brings wrath. And again, we should ask, how so? Again, as Paul wrote elsewhere, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. No fallen human being has ever kept all the things written in the book of the law. Not even close. And so when it comes to the law as a covenant of works, when it comes to the law to be kept for righteousness, when it comes to the law to be kept for standing before God, the law only brings wrath. It only kills it only condemns. It cannot save. This is why Paul is saying it could not be. Eternal life cannot be for fallen man through works of the law. Paul goes on. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. His reasoning here is simple. Where there is no law, there is no breaking of the law. In other words, when you hear this, many of you are already going here. If you are under what? Grace. You are no longer under what? The law to be justified by. You are under grace. The merit of Christ given to you for your justification. You're not under law for your justification. Considering the character of mankind, wherever there is law, there is most certainly transgression. You guys understand that. And so only if the law is removed, as the thing that would justify a person, can there be no transgression? Where there is grace, where there is Christ who has kept the law for sinners, where there is Christ who died to fulfill the penalty of the law for sinners, there is no condemnation. If you are under grace, you are not under the law to be justified by it. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul goes on. Remember what he has already asserted, right? In chapter 3 and verse 24, we are justified by God's grace as a gift. Chapter 3 and verse 27, our boasting is excluded because we are saved by faith in Christ, not our works. 
Chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. We do not work for our salvation, but rather we believe the one who justifies the ungodly and counts righteousness to us apart from what we do. Paul here says this is why justification, salvation, eternal life depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? There it is again. Grace. And be guaranteed to all of Abraham's spiritual offspring. In other words, if the promise did not rest on grace, if the promise did not rest on God, it would not be guaranteed to all of Abraham's spiritual children. There's no way that we could say that salvation is a certainty. Because if it depended upon works, if it depended on us in any way or our obedience, the promise of eternal life would be anything but guaranteed. Paul grounds the assertion that we are all Abraham's spiritual offspring in the words of the Lord to Abraham from Genesis 17, 5. I have made you the father of many nations. As we've noted before, there are two things going on with Abraham. God made promises to him regarding his physical offspring. God also made promises to him regarding his spiritual offspring. The promises that God made to Abraham's physical progeny, while meaningful, in their original context, think nation of Israel, they often, those promises to Abraham's physical children, pointed to things that were greater and other, to things that pertain to his spiritual children. That's clearly how the apostles understood it. It's how Paul clearly understood it. Hence why he points to Genesis 17.5. The Lord said that he had made Abraham the father of many nations. And now we're going to get into Abraham's faith. You see the pivot starting here. God said, I've made you the father of many nations. Yet, when Abraham stood in the presence of God at that moment, yes, there was Ishmael via Hagar, but Sarah had not yet conceived. Sarah had not had a child. Abraham does not have a son, a child of promise yet. And God has said, I'm making you the father of many nations. Yet the God in whom, you see this, verse 17, the God in whom Abraham believed is the one who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Meaning that as far as God is concerned, this thing is certain. It will happen. From man's perspective, though, altogether different. From man's perspective, this is impossible. Which leads us to point two. So if point one is that eternal life comes through the righteousness of faith, Point two, as Paul continues his argument, we're going to consider Abraham the man of faith. Abraham the man of faith from verses 18 to 22. Again, Abraham is being held up as a model of how God saves sinners. Abraham, we know, believed the promises of God. Verse 18, put your eyes on it. In hope, he believed against hope that what God had promised would come to pass. Now it's written this way because, again, we can't reiterate this enough. Based upon what is apparent to man, these things that God promises could never be. Sometimes people, we understand on the one hand what they mean, but sometimes people say something like this, that, that faith is easy. They'll react to the preaching of 
the gospel and the way of salvation when we say, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. Trust the promises of God in Christ. Cast yourself upon Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection for your righteousness, for your forgiveness, for your resurrection, for your eternal life. Believe and you will be saved. And people say, surely it can't be that easy. To which many through the history of the church, myself included, would say, who said faith is easy? Faith is directed, beloved, to things we do not see. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? It's very clear that only God could grant such faith to believe his promises realized through Christ. Not only is faith directed to things we don't see, it is directed to the very opposite of what we perceive. Based on everything we see with our eyes and perceive with our reason, these things God promises to us are impossible. Now, taken on their own merits, the Scripture taken on its own terms is beautiful in its consistency. It makes all kinds of sense and it hangs together wonderfully. Yet, it is counterintuitive to man that God would and could save the way that he does. On top of that, not only is everything we see with our eyes and perceive with our reason saying to us this is impossible, on top of that, there's the nagging doubts and thoughts we have that God might change the counsel of his will and do something else. Maybe he'll change his mind. It's always that possibility. So when it comes to faith and the promise of God, whether it's Abraham or you or me, two massive questions. One, is God able to do this? Does he have the power? Two, is he trustworthy? Will he stay true to his word? In hope, Abraham believed against hope. And only God grants such faith. Verse 19, we see that Abraham believed that his faith did not weaken. Now, brief interjection. We're going to consider Abraham's life in just a minute. We're not going to talk a lot about his faith. We're going to talk about his life. These statements by the Apostle Paul in some ways astonish me. I don't know about you. Because as I read Genesis 12 through 22 or so, there are plenty of places where Abraham's faith is anything but strong. I mean, he does not take God at his word at every instance. Yet the summation of Paul is that Abraham's faith didn't weaken when it came to the promise of God. May that encourage your soul and mine. It's not that Abraham's faith was perfect. The object of his faith, however, something different. So he believed his faith did not weaken when he considered his own body and when he considered the barrenness of his wife, Sarah. Then in verses 20 to 22, with respect to the promise of God, we see that Abraham did not waver due to mistrust, due to unbelief. But he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Therefore, 
it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham persevered in trusting the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith. And in this, he glorified God. That's a significant observation. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to assume the answer. We want to glorify God. Amen? Amen. We want to glorify God. That's a phrase that's thrown around a ton, but it doesn't have a lot of like boots on the ground to it. It's like we want to glorify God, and it's kind of out there in the ether somewhere. Well, look to this text. How did Abraham glorify the Lord? Believing. Believing His promise. At the most fundamental level, brother or sister, you want to glorify the Lord? Take Him at His word. Believe Him. In particular, believe the word of God, the testimony of God regarding His Son who is the Christ. God effectively says to us, beloved, do you see Him? Do you see my Son? Because of Him, your sins forgiven. Righteousness, yours. Salvation, secure. Resurrection and eternal blessedness with me forever, certain. Do you take my word on that? Let the one, says God, who thirsts, come and drink the water of life without payment. Do you trust me on that? And if the answer of your life and the answer of my life is, yes, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. That is a God-glorifying life. As Martin Luther said, he who believes God recognizes him as true and faithful and himself as a liar. For he mistrusts his own thinking as false and trusts the word of God as being true. That honors the Lord very much. As promised, the extended consideration of Abraham's life. We're going to do that now. I don't want to bury the lead here. Abraham is called in Galatians 3, the man of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. And his life was up and down. There were really good things. And there were some really bad things. In other words, he's like us. My hope in this is that considering Abraham's life and the faithfulness of God to save him, that it will be of great encouragement to everyone sitting here this morning. Let no one walk out of here today thinking something silly, like what I'm about to say is belittling sin or condoning foolishness. That would be flat out absurd. But may this encourage our souls. Just brief note for the really like conscientious people among us. I realize that Abraham's name was not always Abraham. And that in Genesis 17, that's when his name was changed from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. But I'm just going to say Abraham and Sarah throughout in the interest of simplicity. So there that is. That's a little housekeeping matter. So we're going to fly over Abraham's life. I'm going to give you Genesis and the chapter. I would encourage you not to turn. I would encourage you just to listen and later on today or this week, read Genesis 12 through 22. It would be an edifying thing for you. 
Abraham shows up on the scene at the end of Genesis 11 when his family, his household is mentioned. Then in Genesis 12, pointedly, we see God calling Abraham. Abraham's family, we know, hailed from Ur of the Chaldeans on the other side of the Euphrates River. They were pagans. They were serving other gods. We know that from Joshua 24. According to God himself, he took Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Again, that's Joshua 24. In other words, Abraham was not a righteous man who sought God. God acted in grace toward him and took him and led him and made promises to him and blessed him. We know in Genesis 12 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The good news of the promised Messiah. Abraham would trust the promises of God in Christ. He would believe in the one who justifies the ungodly. He rejoiced to see Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad. Then, and still in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah, they go down to Egypt because of famine in the land. They went as sojourners. No rights, no protection, no legal recourse. Abraham clearly is concerned about what will happen to them. And so he comes up with a plan. He says, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they're going to want you. They're going to hate me. So tell them that you're not my wife. Actually, tell them that you are my sister so that it may go well for me. We know that this puts Sarah in a very compromised position. She's taken into Pharaoh's household. And Abraham, for his part, is treated really well because of Sarah. The Lord, though, because all of this is a disaster show, sends plagues on Pharaoh and his household because of Sarah. Pharaoh then, not Abraham, Pharaoh is the one who confronts Abraham about it all. And then, in an act of great kindness and mercy, Pharaoh lets Abraham go along with Sarah and everything that he had. In this particular situation, it seems that Pharaoh is more concerned with uprightness than Abraham is. Not only that, Pharaoh is the merciful one. Abraham is the one who lies and deceives and who acts out of selfish interest. Pharaoh is the one who acts uprightly. He's the one who's unselfish. She's more interested, it seems, even in Sarah's welfare than Abraham is. Then when Pharaoh finds out the truth that Sarah is Abraham's wife, he's the one who stops the adultery. He's the one who doesn't continue it. He's the one who confronts it all. He even rebukes Abraham for lying. He doesn't kill Abraham, which would have been very common. More than that, Pharaoh had been giving Abraham all kinds of possessions on Sarah's account, and Pharaoh didn't even take that back from him. Let him leave the country under guard with all his stuff. It's a story of astonishing grace from God through Pharaoh to Abraham. There really is not much in that whole account that Abraham does that's righteous. That's not to slam him. That's to point us to the reality of how this salvation thing works. Chapter 13, moving on in Abraham's life. Abraham, in this account, acts with great humility and great wisdom toward his nephew named Lot. The area where they're living is crowded. They both have a lot of stuff. It's like, look, there's no reason for us to live on top of each other. Conflict's just going to ensue. Decide where you want to live, and I'll take what's left over. 
Abraham gives Lot first choice of where he wants to settle. He acts with humility and wisdom, and it's good. Genesis 14. Abraham there, as you may recall, Lot and his family, along with a lot of the people of the valley, are captured by enemy kings. Abraham, in this account, courageously, under the cover of darkness, takes 318 men of his household and goes and rescues Lot and all the people and all their stuff and brings them back home. A lot of valor, a lot of courage. It's pretty epic. The description is brief, but we can only imagine how all that had to go down. Chapter 15 of Genesis. The Lord again makes promises to Abraham regarding his offspring. Abraham believes the promises of God. It's counted to him as righteousness. And the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham to give his offspring the land of Canaan. Genesis 16. Immediately on the heels of that, we have the whole business with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. He's just believed the promises of God. He's justified by faith. We know that God had promised Abraham that his very own son would be his heir. Sarah, though, after a number of years, has had no children. She comes to Abraham with a plan. She has an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Her plan is for Abraham to have relations with Hagar with the hope of obtaining children by her. So Sarah takes Hagar and gives her to Abraham, not as a surrogate, not as a concubine even, but as a wife. Abraham has relations with her and Hagar conceives. The plan, in other words, worked. According to Sarah and Abraham's wisdom, it worked. And it immediately backfires. Imagine that. Sarah's mad. There's tension between her and Hagar. And Abraham doesn't respond very well. He effectively says, Sarah, do whatever you want to her. So Sarah treats Hagar harshly. Just a brief pause. Do you see the ebbs and the flows of Abraham's life? You do, right? There's the mess in Egypt. There's the heroic, excuse me, courageous stuff in rescuing Lot and the people of Sodom. There's Abraham's belief in the promises of God. He's counted righteous on account of Christ. He has another vision in which God makes a covenant with him. Then on the heels of that, he agrees to sleep with his wife's servant. And he and Sarah, they seek effectively to take matters into their own hands. And then when the whole thing backfires, he shows no backbone and shows no concern for the woman that he's impregnated. All of this results in a pregnant woman running off into the desert where she could die along with the child she's carrying in her womb. And Abraham, for his part, doesn't really do anything about it. He just stands there with his hands in his pockets. Not great. Genesis 17. The Lord then expands on his covenant with Abraham and gives him the sign of circumcision. So yet again, we have the Lord acting. Genesis 18, Abraham along with Sarah, they're visited by the Lord. What a wonderful account, Genesis 18. The Lord reiterates his promise of Abraham having a son through Sarah. And there's the whole wonderful piece where Sarah laughs at the promise of God. You know, and the Lord effectively says, like, no, you laughed at I mean, it's a really cool, like the Lord's compassion and his faithfulness, how he's going to continue to do these things for them in spite of their weakness. Then Abraham, at the end of Genesis 18, intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah because the Lord has said, I'm going to destroy it. Abraham intercedes in a way that appeals to God's justice and his grace and his mercy. It's quite compelling. Then in Genesis 19, 
On Abraham's account, we're told that the Lord rescued Lot when he destroyed the cities of the valley. Then in Genesis 20, we have Egypt 2.0, effectively. This time with a king named Abimelech. Abraham sojourns for a time in a place called Gerar, and he effectively looks at Sarah and says, all right, Sarah, you remember the plan, right? You tell him you're my sister. Obviously, it had gone well before, you know, so we'll do it again. Abraham lies, he deceives, he plans for his wife to be given over to defilement again for his own sake. And God, again, is the only hero in the story. God is the one who keeps it from going utterly off the rails. Abimelech doesn't sin with Sarah, not because of Abimelech's uprightness, but because God said, I wouldn't let it happen. Then in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. Abimelech makes a treaty with Abraham. Abraham was obviously a man of wealth and power beyond our comprehension. If you are a privately wealthy person making treaties with heads of state, you are something. Then in Genesis 22, this most remarkable chapter. Now, that chapter, is it screams Jesus throughout. I refer you to the Genesis sermon series from a while back if you want to hear that piece. But for our purposes today, Genesis 22 also serves as a kind of bookend of Abraham's life of faith. God tests Abraham. We're told that at the beginning of Genesis 22. The Lord tested Abraham. Abraham didn't know it was a test. We do. The test is to believe the promises of God, particularly regarding Isaac. Because the Lord says, Genesis 22.2, to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. And Abraham does exactly what the Lord says. The next morning, he rises early, makes preparations, and they head out. Through the entire passage, it is very clear that Abraham is really prepared to actually do this thing. Like this is no, he's not faking. He's not fronting. I mean, this is legit. He's going to carry it through. And he believes, we know this because the writer to the Hebrews tells us this. What did Abraham believe? What was his faith in God like? He believes that somehow, Isaac is going to come back down the mountain. He believes, he was convinced that God would keep his promise, even if that meant raising Isaac from the dead. That's faith. So pulling all of this together, Abraham has failed in some epic ways, and he acts with great faith at points. The good news regarding Abraham is not that he crushed it in life all the time. It's that he trusted the one who did all things well. The great act of faith as well regarding Isaac. I mean, Genesis 22 and Abraham's faith there is going to be written about by a number of authors in the Scripture. This great act of faith later in Abraham's life, beloved, is a wonderful depiction of how the Lord works in the lives of his people. It's a great picture of sanctification. Consider it, right? 
There had been decades past from when Abraham was justified by faith in the promise of God and then Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Decades. In those decades, there was a lot of failure. And there was victory. There was up. There was down. And yet through it all, the Lord had worked steadfastness in Abraham to the extent that he's prepared to sacrifice his son because the Lord has said, do this. That's remarkable. And it speaks to how God is faithful to sanctify his children and to work steadfastness in us in the midst of up and down, good and bad, heartache, sorrow, joy and pain. He will do it. All of God's people from all time have been sinner saints. We should not be surprised looking at Abraham's life. We should not be surprised when the saints exhibit great faith and then at times commit great sins. This is true of those who have gone before us, and it's true of us. And in a more mundane, ordinary sense, we shouldn't be surprised when the saints daily trust the Lord and daily battle the flesh, sometimes losing that fight. Abraham is called the man of faith. He was justified by faith on account of Christ. And God not only justified him, God sanctified him, God kept him, God will glorify Abraham. And given that we're like Abraham, and Abraham's like us, what was true of him is true for us. The Lord will do this thing. That brings us now to point three. Point three is that Jesus saved Abraham and he saved us. Jesus saved Abraham and he saved us. That's effectively Paul's argumentation. This is how God saved Abraham. By grace through faith in Christ, it's how you too will be saved. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. This is the way of salvation. The words, you can put your eyes back on the text, verses 23 to 25. In verse 23, we see this. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham's sake alone. They were written for our sake also. This is because all of us who believe the Lord's word concerning his son will also, like Abraham, be counted righteous by faith apart from works. Notice too, in verse 24, it will be counted to us. Righteousness will be counted to us, right? Who believe, look at how God is described here. Who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. That's a statement about the character of the Father. He is the one we trust. This is our God. This is who he is. This is what he's like. He's the one who planned salvation. He's the one who loved the world in such a way that he sent his son into the world to save man and who, upon the completion of the son's work, raised him from the dead. As Jesus said during his earthly ministry, I and the Father are one. Not just one in essence, one in the purpose of redemption too, right? As we have said and as we have marveled at this time and time again, the Lord is nothing if he is not a redeemer. That's who he is. And that's what Paul is effectively saying in this brief confession. We believe 
in the one who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. The Lord is a redeemer and we believe in him in that sense. We see regarding Jesus, verse 25, two things. That he was delivered up. That means he's handed over to die and suffer for our transgressions, for our trespasses. And then he was raised for our justification. We're going to think about this. He was delivered up for our trespasses. According to the plan and the will and the foreknowledge of God, Jesus was crushed for our sins, not for his own, for ours. He was our substitute. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He became sin and a curse for us. He endured all the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. There's a lot of nonsense that's been spewed through the history of the church that is spewed today about the death of Jesus being an example, merely. Or the death of Jesus being a testimony, some ethereal way about the love of God. Do not listen to that nonsense. The death, the suffering of Jesus Christ was to make atonement for our souls. It's why He died. It's why He suffered. To take our wickedness and our sin and atone for it, to satisfy the wrath of God for it, so that we might be absolved of guilt. And He accomplished that on the work of the, in the work of the cross. He did not make your salvation possible, beloved. He saved you. He atoned for you. And Jesus was raised for our justification, Paul says. He was raised, hear this. I want us this morning to be able to connect His resurrection to our justification. He was raised so that He might enter the holy place. Not the holy place made with hands. So that He might enter the holy place that is in the heavens. And so that He might enter there by means of His own blood. So that through His presence there, we might really be declared just. Jesus died for our guilt and His resurrection is our acquittal from every charge. Jesus Himself, in His person, suffered the punishment of sin. You remember what God said. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. He did. He suffered that. And then Jesus got up from the dead, which was God's testimony that his sacrifice was enough. Divine justice had been satisfied. Divine wrath had been appeased. The law had been honored and established in salvation. And the resurrection of Christ from the dead is God's testimony that all for whom Jesus died would have that same kind of eternal life. You realize that Jesus himself in his own person has established eternal life. He lives forever. He will never die. He has no sin. He has established that life in himself. And so everyone who's united to him, who is a member of his body by faith, we will share in that same life, that same eternal, invincible life. He has secured that for us. Many of you may be familiar with the words of Hebrews chapter 7. Many people know Hebrews 7 because of Melchizedek and the words there. And people aren't quite sure what to do with Melchizedek. 
But that chapter is about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. How He is a high priest forever. I'm going to read portions of Hebrews 7. I don't want you to turn there. I want you to listen. And I want you to listen to these words from the writer to the Hebrews with this phrase in mind. Jesus was raised for our justification. He was raised so that we would be justified. Have that in your mind and listen to these words. He has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, those high priests, those other ones, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, the oath of God, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He was raised for our justification. He is a high priest forever. He always lives to intercede and advocate for his own. He was delivered over for our trespasses made atonement, and He was raised for our justification. Praise be to the Lord through Jesus Christ our Savior. So beloved, as you consider these things today, don't look to yourself. Don't look to yourself. Look to Him. Look to that One. The resurrected, forever High Priest who is your intercessor. Who is your advocate? The question is not, have you done enough? You most certainly have. The question is, do you believe God's testimony about the Christ? And with that, we close in prayer.